to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 94. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. So on today's episode, we're talking about Squid Game, which is Netflix's newest breakout TV show that busted all of Netflix's previous benchmarks. It's the biggest show that they have ever produced. And Squid Game is a story about this shadowy cabal, spoiler alert, massive spoilers ahead in in this conversation. But Squid Game is a story about a shadowy cabal that reaches out to a bunch of people in massive debt and offers offers them a chance to win a huge amount of money by participating in a competition of children's games. The only catch is if you don't follow the rules or you lose, you are eliminated. And that actually means death. So it's a pretty brutal show. And joining me to talk about this, we have Grace Sangalang Ng, Dr. Chris Song, and Dr. Logan Williams. Grace, Chris, Logan, what did you guys make of this this crazy show? I uh, I, I wasn't planning to watch Squid Game, um, except that all of my kids got on it pretty early. The moment I saw that crazy doll scene um, in episode one, I was I was hooked. I was like, "What is going on?" And it, at first, it, it it took me a while to map it. I was like, "Is this you know? Is this Maze Runner? Is it Hunger Games?" Um, and then I watched back from the beginning, you know, the premise, obviously it really got me because it's not Hunger Games and it's not Maze Runner for the simple fact that they're signing up. They're, they're, they're part of, they're, they're, they're part of the brutality. So I, you know, I, I was hooked for sure. Um, and I'm sure that that was, that was sort of a real compelling reason why um, so many people were able to latch on to the idea and sort of follow it through there's so much to really praise about the whole show i i, I really think the, the set designs uh the concepts um they they were, they were so striking so the success of it i think is a little surprising um on one level you know because it's 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 in korean and uh, that's that's usually some kind of barrier you know there's there's problems that i have with it we could talk about some of that but on, on the whole i mean like I said, it was it it caught me from from that very that very beginning. Um, I really appreciated the fact that it keeps it, it keeps going deeper. The 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 more that you think about it, the more that people talk about it. Uh, there's layers there that that we can keep exploring. Yeah, Chris, I think I agree that it kind of hooked me in from that first scene. It was shocking for sure. Like mm. when, yeah, red light, green light was pretty crazy, but. Um, I think also something that was compelling is um, just like the stories of the characters and how like as we go through the series, we like understand more and more of their background and, um, you know, like get attached to some of the characters, like seeing, you know, not just their like maybe the choices that were not like the most wise choices that got them into that situation in the first place, but then also their like compassion and humanity or maybe lack of humanity for some, some characters. Yeah. So I think it was really compelling to just explore more of like the characters relationships and backstories as well. I love the show and not just because 
you know, it's it's fun and uh, enthralling, but I think it also uh, is really insightful in the way that it comments upon society and economics, capitalism, family, greed, and and love, and how all of those can come into conflict in various ways. Uh, and I think they explore uh, these tensions, the tensions between these aspects of our lives and aspects of the world that we live in uh, really well. Yeah, I was also hooked from the very beginning. And as has, has been mentioned, I was similarly disturbed by the red light, green light scene. Um, but it's, it was so intriguing as it as it develops. And, and as Chris mentioned, you realize that, yeah, it kind of gives you the sense of like Hunger Games. But especially when you get to the second episode, when they've all, you know, again, spoilers, of course, but they've all gone back and, and they decide to return. You know, you, yeah, as Chris has said, they've signed up for this. They, they know what it's about and they want to compete for that money uh, and just that whole layer to it makes it so much more compelling um, at, at that level of kind of like their financial situation and what they're you know striving to attain but I got massive vibes of the Saw franchise and I'm curious if anybody else did and I think there's kind of like three aspects that really I think maybe perhaps influence Squid Games, especially when we find out that the the director uh, had the story in mind going back to 2008 when the Saw franchise was at its peak, perhaps. That does kind of make sense to me. So a couple of things that stand out. I think the first thing, of course, to mention is Ilnam, player one, his participation in the game. That is very much, I think, like an homage to the ending of the first Saw film where, where you have the, the main bad guy, John. He's he's there in the room the whole time, right? He's laying on the floor. I think, I think that idea of being a part of the game is very much a Saw thing. I also think that um, the the dynamic of playing games right so obviously these are different types of games they're not they're not you know sort of hor horrifying like torture games as they are in saw but they are nevertheless playing games i think that dynamic but then the other thing i would say is is the philosophy of these bad guys we don't get a ton of it but the way i kind of describe the the sort of the philosophy behind the saw villain is there's this malevolent benevolence right it's not actually good but they think that what they're doing is trying to provide a good that can in squid game put everybody on an equal playing field as they are striving for for uh this money like there's that part where the front man i think it's when they find the the doctor had been working with some of the the cronies in pink you know uh and the front man is like you know we have we have given them this equality that they don't have out there and you get that sense that you know he thinks and they think they're doing something good right and that, and that um, malevolent benevolence, I think, is also a quality that fits both shows. And so I think there's definitely some Saw influence. I don't know what you all think about that. Yeah, no, um, I had a similar thought. Um, and it wouldn't be surprising. Saw um, had had quite a reception in Korea and South Korea. You know, when I when I watch Korean TV, for instance, there's still a lot of reference uh, to Saw, some of its iconography, obviously the mask. So yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me at all. I think I think that that's that's certainly an influence. You know, another um, another uh, movie that um, that the writer director was consciously drawing from was uh, the Japanese movie Battle Royale, and much less Hunger Games. I mean, despite the comparison, um, he, um, he you know the the concept of the show was was developed before you know before Hunger Games you know sort of took off. You know, the idea, you know, Hunger Games is not unique. The idea of like sort of this this orchestrated game to the death, um, you know, 
that's been explored. And the main difference, of course, here is that um, it's it's not just uh, it, it's not just sort of an act of cruelty to to unwilling participants. Um, and I think that that's that's the twist that I think is worth investigating and and talking about. And and whether whether you know good or bad, I mean that's that's certainly the difference here. Yeah, so something that I thought was interesting um, that Squid Games pointed out is um, just that critique of the people in power, even just looking at like in Squid Games, who are the people in power? You know, they're wealthy men and how that plays into how the games go and how the characters interact, um, even looking at like how a lot of times the female players were marginalized like the men didn't want to pick them because they thought they weren't as strong up to like when the VIPs arrive then you see the woman just like furniture they were not they didn't even have a voice or they didn't even move or they weren't even seen as people they were just objects so even looking at that like depending on where you are in the different levels, there's also like different levels of power as well. Yeah, I think with the, um, it just comes to mind uh, with the kind of gender dynamics uh, at play between uh, the kind of like gangster guy, the like, you know, the, the, the big guy who can like beat everyone up and Minya, who's like his kind of girlfriend for a bit, but then like ends up killing him. But that whole dynamic of like, it's actually what, what ends up kind of being his downfall in the end is the fact that he kind of exhibited this uh, kind of like independent masculinity kind of thing, right? That kind of like, I don't need you. I'm going to use you for a bit. But then the moment, you know, there's some kind of conflict, I'm done with you. Uh, and that becomes the basis on which she's like, I will kill you. <laughs> um, and there's a kind of like criticism of this kind of faux ideal of this independent strong man that actually it's his kind of front of independence and strength that ends up being the very thing that ends up getting him killed and getting him killed by uh, the woman whom he sought to dispose for his own benefit. Uh, so I think there's kind of like this, this kind of motif of like interdependence um, there. Uh, and I think it's interesting the way a lot of the kind of male pairings we see together are end up being hostile right um so you have the two guys in the you know one guy tricks the other guy with it with the marbles and ends up stealing them uh then there's um uh, uh ilnam and jihan who are you know obviously they're not getting along while they're doing the marble game um but then there's um the people who kind of actually are never actually really turn against each other are the girl from South Korea, Ji Hyung, the girl from North Korea, Cybuk. And they're able to actually stick out this competition without fully turning on each other. Of course, there's some anger involved, but it's not there there's there's never this kind of like maliciousness to it. Whereas with all the other pairs you see, at least all the other pairs that we see, we see a kind of maliciousness. All the other, especially all the other guy guy pairs, we see this maliciousness. So I think there's I definitely think there's some there's some gender dynamics. <laughs> there's, there's there's a criticism of like stereotypical kind of male male fighting um and how that doesn't that doesn't come to 
fruition in this, you know, other relationship uh, between between these two women. There's there's even the the male female pair that we don't actually see what happens yeah. right, but the, we we see the outcome, which is that the husband is the one who's left, and you know I yeah. think that that could probably fit into some stereotypes about masculinity as well. Well, and to go along with that, it's like uh, Jiang is the only true like person who actually sacrificed herself for another. So yeah, just seeing how valuable like her selflessness is in the game because no one else really exhibits that kind of selflessness. I think another thing about Ji Young, which was really interesting um, finding about her backstory is how she was a pastor's kid and um, how her dad was so abusive and ended up murdering her mom and then she ended up murdering her dad. So it was just really interesting to see um, how religion is portrayed in this as well, just being like another cause of violence. We also see her make fun of that one player who's praying at different points, you know, hoping for a particular outcome and just the whole dynamics of like that, that survival aspect of what this man has to do to keep playing the game and how that conflicts with his faith. And we even see him kind of negotiating like, you know, what he's like permitted to do given the situation that he's in with with kind of the obvious ethics that he knows is sort of like calling him to something else so that's a, another really interesting dynamic about how religion is portrayed in this show yeah and then also like how something she says is like you know whenever my dad abused my mom is that he always prays to god for forgiveness so i was like oh that is yeah deep that like that's like that kind of sense of quote unquote forgiveness, like is an excuse to continue doing that abuse or that sin. And yet she ends up being the only person, as you mentioned, who actually does the act that Jesus says is the greatest act of love, lay down your life. So there's this kind of irony of like, you know, the, of course, the, the game not only can bring out the unexpected or the kind of like what is stereotypically unexpected, but also can just relentlessly corrupt. I do think it, it also kind of is a comment on the relationship between capitalism and religion. In the game, if you're going to play the game at all, right, if you're going to get past any round, right, or maybe you know, actually, as the rounds go on, right, you it's not just that you have to survive instead of other people, but you have to kill people. Right, you have to be the person who does not give up their life. So this guy who keeps praying, right, and I think there's a comment about it, when this guy's praying, and someone says to him, you've just killed people. Like, I think it was after tug of war. Uh, and he's like, how are you like praying, right? And he, he, he does this bargaining thing, right, where he's trying to like, not deal with the fact that in being in this game, he has to he has to play dirty if he's going to survive, and yet he's still trying to like retain uh, this this you know religious aspect of himself, which uh, you know he he obviously feels some cognitive dissonance about, but doesn't want to deal with it, right? And and I just think that there's this like comment on how relentlessly this game, this capitalist game can corrupt even the most well-intentioned of people and even the people who presumably, you know, would highly explicitly value not murdering people. Uh, and yet 
just being in this system means that it's it has the capacity to corrupt you in ways that you don't recognize or in ways that you refuse to recognize right he doesn't want to recognize the extent to which he has been co-opted by this game and how much therefore he's com he's functionally completely denied the religion that he says he follows thinks he's still a part of we see that as viewers uh, but we also see him trying to ignore the kind of horrific reality that this game has turned him into something that he's that is so beyond horrific that he can't can't accept what he's become yeah there, there's just a comment about um religion uh you know as a system is actually impotent to save people from this game right and, and in many ways it can kind of be a cover for dealing with the fact that you have been so relentlessly corrupted yeah this idea that capitalism can leverage religion in some negative horrifying ways i think is absolutely fascinating and it, i think as a transition into our conversation on capitalism it you know makes me think a little bit about the end of uh, of the show where you know he's being recruited to meet with ilnam the host you know he hears this preacher or whatever and he goes up to meet ilnam player one the host and there's this kind of weird subversive parable of the good Samaritan kind of playing out in front of them and they're playing this final game, you know, is somebody going to help this person who's going to die out in the cold or not, you know, and that, that to me just kind of like encapsulated exactly what you're saying, Logan, about this kind of horrifying relationship potentially between religion and capitalism and, and, and that thinking about it as this kind of weird subversive parable, of the good Samaritan. Right. And the reversal being of course, that, um, that somebody does help, that somebody does help a man, right? There is, there is sort of like, uh, you know, the, the sought after good in humanity, but it's explicitly uh, stripped from its sort of its religious aspect of it. And just like we were mentioning with Sebyak, um, and, and Ji Young's sacrifice is, is, is that she, if, if, there is a, if there is a redemptive figure, if there is a Christ figure, it's her, but she's completely disavowed that. Which is also kind of like, also in and of itself kind of spin on the good samaritan isn't it that it's the most actually unexpected person the uh the person who's a who's a syncretist who's an apostate who ends up actually being the most loving person in the story that's that is so beautiful yeah uh the second episode's called hell if i remember correctly uh and and the last episode maybe second to last episode right he, uh, the um gihan is is thrown out uh, of this car and ends up on the ground in the rain with this, you know, credit card uh, in his mouth <laughs> or de debit card in his mouth. Um, and there's this guy, you know, preaching that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. Uh, and I just think there's a comment of like, actually, he's been in hell the whole time. And the only way to get out is murdering people. Right. And he doesn't actually end up murdering anyone, technically. But it kind of like it, it, it accentuates the kind of contrast between like how much this religious guy just doesn't understand the kind of problems that he's in and that the system that he's offering is just so irrelevant to him because he's like, I have so many, I'm already in hell, you know, I'm offered these ways of getting out, right? Like this whole, this Jesus thing, like, you know, I have no fear of going into hell because I'm literally already living it, right? And so there's, this is kind of like impotence of like what, 
this religion is addressing like is it actually helping anyone like and and the contrast is so obvious like he's just come from this great ordeal and this person's like beware if you're going to hell and actually he knows more about hell than that preacher will ever know um logan i was just thinking about what you said and um yeah like the disconnect between um like the street preacher of understanding the lived reality um Gihun and the people who were um in the game and how yeah that's like a huge critique of Christianity and religion like a lot of times I think the church doesn't you know speak to the lived reality of people and the suffering that people are going through um and how like we need to be better at that like you know if we really want to be who we're supposed to be as, you know, Jesus's hands and feet. Like we need to be like walking with people and understanding that suffering and entering that suffering with people. Um, I think a big reason why this show is so compelling for me is because like now that I work um, for a city's health department, um, the programs that we support, you know, are like Um, supporting these under-resourced communities, the most disadvantaged communities that don't have the resources. Um, They have been victims of the, you know, capitalist system. And so, yeah, it's interesting being like in this government agency and learning more about what compassion looks like to people more than I ever did in like Christian circles. So, yeah, I think that's just an interesting point that you um, brought up, Logan. I love everything that we've just been talking about. Can we can we dig more into the representation of capitalism in Squid Game? Uh, obviously, there, there's a strong critique of capitalism in it. Um, but I think the critique is actually more incisive than a lot of people realize. So I think of two um, aspects in particular that uh, are, are really insightful criticisms, I, I think, of capitalism. And of course... There are a lot of people, you know, in today that kind of bemoan capitalism, but are not able to really articulate why they don't like it, why they think it's bad. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad view to hold. Um, It just means that you need to put some, you know, meat on the bones of this uh, criticism uh, if you hold a a critical view of capitalism. So I, I think in a similar way, the... The show is not just bemo- it's not just moaning about capitalism in this kind of empty way. It it actually contains really insightful criticisms, and uh, it actually criticizes capitalism on its own grounds. It both criticizes modern arguments for it and really early arguments for it. And I'll just give two examples. One, the comment when the doctor uh, gets caught uh, and they're all hanging from uh, this uh, wire, uh, and the front man says they've taken away the ability for this game to be fair. Uh, and of course, uh, hearing that is, is such a ridiculous idea, right? We think, who cares if it's fair? People are dying, right? It might actually be correct that in, in one respect, this game is actually so fair, but who cares about fairness? Who cares about equal footing when people are getting mutilated to death? Right. And so this is kind of like a criticism of those people who say, oh, well, capitalism gives everyone the opportunity to do well. Right? Capitalism is fair. It, it, it advocates equality. Right. And, everyone, and, and like even though in some kind of really thin sense that might be true, and I don't think it is. But even if it were, 
It's a ridiculous thing to talk about. Why are we talking about the fairness of this system when people are getting unjustly killed by it? Right? Who cares that the system is fair? The system kills people. Right? So I think that's a really insightful criticism. And then also, and I'm not sure how much the uh, writers or writer intended this criticism, but there's a book that I'd recommend to everyone. It's very short by Albert Hirschman called The Passions and the Interests, Political Arguments for Capitalism Before Its Triumph. And the argument of the passions of the interest is basically that, well, it's not the argument, it's, a, it's an analysis of early arguments for, for capitalism. And Hirschman traces this view going all the way back to Augustine. And Augustine makes this uh, passing comment about how passions can check one another, sinful passions can check one another, that sometimes I might restrict my sinful desire for X in order to increase my sinful desire for Y. Uh, and on, onward from Augustine, Hirschman traces this view all the way until this idea becomes deployed as an argument for capitalism. And so the very earliest arguments in favor of capitalism that Hirschman points out uh, are that if we make the whole world obsessed with making money and we turn up everyone's greed as loud as possible, we will solve the problem of violence in the world. No one will kill each other. There'll be no more war because everyone will be so concerned and obsessed with making money. So greed uh, is the vice that we can kind of safely exploit the most. So we can make everyone in the world super greedy and give them the opportunity to be infinitely greedy. And if so, we'll solve the problem of world violence. And of course, this sounds ridiculous to us today, but I do think that this whole show provides such an incredible criticism of that, that it's actually in this instance, the poverty created by capitalism and the, and the obsessive desire for infinite more and more and more money that lead people to becoming horrible murderers, even of their own family. I think that criticism is incredibly incisive and I'm not sure how much work the, the writers have done on the, on the history of capitalism, but I wouldn't be surprised if they know about these early arguments and are kind of addressing them. But, but also in another sense, there are people, I believe Steven Pinker kind of advocates for this argument that, you know, part of the reason why we're less violent is because we're just so obsessed with making money now. Um, so it's also a modern argument, although it's less common uh, as, it, as it was uh, back in the days of early capitalism or, or prior to capitalism, rather. I think that's really fascinating. And I think it's a, a, an important critique that I think is there in, in the show. And I, I think that um, one of the things when we're talking about capitalism is, you know, a, a lot of people sort of feel like if you say anything negative about it, you're a socialist or a communist, right? There's not a lot of nuance in this conversation. So, like, for example, North Korea put out this statement about Squid Game and they basically said, look, how horrible South Korean capitalist society is, you know, and that, you know, made headlines. And for example, the Deseret News, which is, you know, a conservative Mormon newspaper outlet, basically utilized that North Korean comment as a way of saying, stay away from Squid Game. Clearly it's bad because if because if you critique capitalism, you're bad, right? And so I think 
there's not a lot of nuance here. Um, and, and it's important to, to, to bring that out, how, how, to, how to sort of critique capitalism from a place of capitalism, right? I mean, obviously the director and the people in the, in the show are benefiting from its success. And so is Netflix. So, so there, there's, there's this kind of um, broader dynamic that we also need to keep in mind here. But I, you know, for example, I've heard a lot recently in conversations on economics to talk about like, you know, chastened capitalism or like people-centered capitalism, you know, ways of, 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 trying to like be more nuanced in this conversation that you can you can be critical of some of the the injustice of capitalism without saying i want to throw everything out and become <laughs> full on socialist i think i think we just need i just want to say i think we need a lot of nuance when we're having this conversation but i think what you've just brought out logan is absolutely fascinating i mean the the effects and the ravages of capitalism that's that's every every culture should be able to have uh, tools to to, to latch on. I mean, we, we see it in, in different economies, different countries, just how polarizing and how, how, uh, how people can be torn apart um, um, by, by the effects of capitalism. Um, there are aspects um, to South Korean uh, capitalism and South Korean economies that I think they're, uh, that have some deeper resonance only on, on, on some uh, some sort of the granular levels of lending. Um, I know that the show sort of uh, nods to that at the end. There's a news story uh, about um, about personal credit and 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 lending. Um, it's 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 a widespread practice in in in, in South Korea to to uh, to lend and to borrow money, uh, much more than sort of like a home equity line of credit or. The, the type of credit that might be available um, to Americans. It's, it's just on a different level in South Korea where um, uh, lending is, is much more available um, and much less collateralized. And so the type of desperation that um, some of our characters in, in Squid Game face um, is a lot more, I don't want to say normal, but a lot more possible um, for these characters then maybe folks um, in, in other contexts might not necessarily appreciate. There are a lot of uh, shared touchstones in, in Korea's recent memory um, that highlight some of the painful effects of, of capitalism. Um, the, the Seoul uh, ferry tragedy um, that occurred you know, in, in the past decade um, is sort of this symbolic event of capitalistic greed that um, has deadly consequences for, for children, um, uh, the children that were on that boat and the students that, that died. And so it really does touch a nerve um, when you think about uh, Korea's past and, and, and basically um, you know, the interests of either uh, the elite or those in power or the interests of, um, of, of wealth and protected wealth and often the victims of that in, 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 in Korean history has been, has been young ones. And so there's some obvious undertones that I think, um, I, I think get, get, um, get touched um, from, from that perspective. Um, and at the same time, I, I, I think that South Koreans themselves, they, they don't like to be preached at. So it doesn't necessarily have the same popularity um, 
that it did overseas. The same would go for Parasite. I mean, I think there was a lot of consternation of Koreans of, you know, why is this, uh, uh, why, you know, you know, why is it getting so much recognition? And part of it is that, um, you know, it's, it's them in the mirror <laughs> and they don't, they don't like the finger being pointed at them. So uh, there, there's some deeper resonances there that I think um, that context would help, but it's not necessary. I mean, it, you know, we, it translates so well into our own uh, experiences of, of what, what the system can do. Perhaps in an American context, we are sort of thinking of student loan debt and things like that. <laughs> yeah, student loan debt. And uh, I wonder what the analog is for the Bernie Sanderses and the Liz Warrens of the world that are trying to eliminate student debt. <laughs> Everybody can understand how people get into debt. I mean, loan sharks, and that's all of reality in, 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 in every, in every cult, country and, and setting. I think the, the main difference that, that I recognize, um, um, you know, talking to relatives that live in South Korea and friends that are there is the ease in which um, credit is available. That lending is, is, is just, is, is just a, a, another, it's just assumed as a way of life um, in ways that I think is not, it's not necessarily the same as just racking up your credit cards to the max until you get repossessed um just lending on 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 a level that's a lot easier to secure um in in south korean settings and so debt in that way is just it's 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 more normal than i think that we we see in in at least in american contexts so not that americans or westerners can't understand just that there's there's a particular valency to to lending that I think is is um, is heightened in in South Korea, and that the, that the writer is that the writer is putting a finger on. I think just like thinking theologically for a moment about you know how maybe like Christians can think about and engage capitalism. Two two questions arise, uh, which I think are really presented um, in the uh, in in the series. One. What does it look like to not play the game, right? So, obviously, we live in we live in this capitalistic world that we can't control, that exerts pressure on us. That, in some sense, if we don't play it, you know, that we do, we'll have an inability to live, right? In order to survive, we have to pay. We have to, in some way, pay into the system. But what does it look like to not play in such a way that? is for detrimental to others and makes us really liable. I don't know I answer to this. Um, and then two, what is it to fight the game, right? And, and that is, uh, uh, that, that question is raised by the final scene, right? Where Gihon realizes that the game's still going on, turns around and obviously is gonna try and do something about it, right? So even though he's escaped the game in some sense, he's found a way not to play it anymore he decides that he wants to try and just burn it all down and i do think that there is a lot of theological reasons to believe that we can imagine a world without capitalism and there are a lot of theological reasons in which should pressure us to not do a lot of things that we could do right um in, in engaging in this game that 
you know, inevitably presses down upon us. So those are just two questions. How do we not play the game or how do we engage in such a way that is somehow ethical, even though this system relentlessly corrupts? And then two, what does it look like to fight the game? Yeah. So one of the things that you had said in there that to me is so striking is that aspect of, you know, the game gets stopped. The, the front man comes down and says, you know, you know, we need to preserve the fairness of the game. Um, and how, how bizarre that is when you've just seen just shocking violence. You know, that comes up in that really great last uh, argument between Sang-Hoo and Gi-Hoon when they're, they're really just face-to-face and Gi-Hoon is saying, how can, you, how can you just kill these people? How can you be so, how can you be so like, murderous and cruel? And Sangu, the 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 other character, the banker, the the guy who you know who has sort of the the wits about him, he says this great line, which is you know which which was something to the effect of you know that's what your problem is is that you're asking these questions that you're you're even daring to just put it out in black and white, and even even for Sangu, what he's I think what he's trying to communicate is you know. You can't, you can't, you can't make it if you're if you're putting it in these terms. If you if you've set it up a certain way, you're just not going to be able to live with yourself. Um, so you know, in some way, like we talked about the the Christian who's ne- negotiating his faith and these Bible verses with the cruelty of the game, um, and the front man who has this weird puppet master thing going, where you know that needs to be preserved. There's this, there's this other idea that, um, you know, you can't, you can't call things the way they are and manage to survive. And, and so I think that this is going to your question about, you know, how, how do we disengage or how do we not play along the game's rules? Um, I think Gihun represents the, you know, in some ways, the childlike aspect of why does it have to be this way? This is, this is obvious. Things can be so much different. Why, why do we have to do the bad thing? Why do we have to do the hard thing? Um, and I think that those questions are supposed to resonate. And I think the tragedy, of course, is that, you know, the answers are not good. Uh, <laughs> I think Sang was saying, uh, you know, it's not even worth asking the question. A few years ago, Catherine Tanner gave the Gifford lectures, uh, I think at Edinburgh, uh, and she did it on Christianity and capitalism. Uh, the book came out, um, I think it's called Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. And one of the things that she brings up is how it's kind of a basic theological imperative to think about and fight for a world that's different from the one we're currently in. Uh, and that Christian theology, the task of th- Christian theology isn't just to affirm the status quo of everything, right? What's the likelihood in terms of like, you know, just theological mindset, what's, what's the likelihood that the economic system that is bequeathed to us in this moment is God's ideal for the world, right? Like it just, it's just somewhat like prima facie ridiculous, right? And of course there are like books, you know, probably a plethora of books. I know at least one that basically say like capitalism is you know the greatest fulfillment of the um, creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Like multiplying money is a fulfillment of that. And 
Yeah, that's called the, the book, The Virtues of Capitalism. Um, I forget who wrote it. Uh, but you can go look it up if you um, want to be in pain. But I, but I think, you know, what, what we're presented with in Squid Game is the obvious pressure to think of what life would be like without this game, right? And I, and I do think that, like, what if so much of our theologizing was just addressing the kind of water that we swim in, right? The water that we swim in is this finance-dominated capitalistic world. Um, and I think often theologians forget that that's something that needs to be addressed and needs to be thought through and needs to be challenged because it is so much of the water that they swim in that they don't, they don't think about it as this contingent thing that, they, that maybe is actually horrible. <laughs> That's obviously not all theologians, but a lot of them. Um, and so she kind of brings up the kind of, the kind of theological imperative to think of a better world. Uh, and I think um, you can go watch those lectures. They're on YouTube. And also the book came out uh, called Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. But I think, um, yeah, I, th I think she makes insightful points. I think those same points are kind of presented to us in, in Squid Game in kind of non-theological form. Yeah, I really love that idea that Squid Game puts imaginative and even theological pressure on us to think critically about some of these dynamics that you've just been talking about in relation to capitalism, but also the way that capitalism can leverage religion in, in some unfortunate ways. And at least to be kind of self-aware, self-critically reflective about these things, I think is really valuable. So really appreciate that insight and just want to say how much I love this conversation as a whole. This was such a fun time. I love being able to gauge pop culture theologically. So this is just a lot of fun. But before we conclude, I think there's one little aside that we need to have, perhaps as a little bit of an epilogue to this conversation, mm -hmm. which is that Ilnam, player one, aka the host, is the father of Gihun. So people have said this, and but I'll, I'll isolate three bits of evidence, which I think are, I'm absolutely certain that player one is <laughs> Gihun's father. Um, so first, they're both lactose intolerant. And I know that like lots of people are lactose intolerant, blah, blah, blah. But like, <laughs> you have to think, right? These writers don't waste any freaking detail in this whole show, right? Every single detail down to what is on the wall, right? You see the games on the wall, right? Every single detail down to the, the, the paintings of what's on the wall, like every, everything, no detail is wasted right so the fact that it, the the writers go out of their way to explicate that they're both lactose intolerant seems very intentional second of all um during the marbles game uh ilnam uh, obviously recognizes this that this you know this village is like based on his kind of hometown um and of course then gihun also says oh i recognize this alleyway right now we know Later on, that the reason why it looks like you know Ilnam's town is because he's the host. Um, but of course, the writer's not wasting details. Why would they have Gihon say, I recognize this alleyway? And this is the third thing. And so those those other two things I've heard other people talk about and seen, you know, on like fan theories and stuff. But here's a third bit which I haven't seen anyone talk about, which I think is actually the strongest piece of evidence because. If Ilnam is his father, it makes this dialogue absolutely genius. So, at the end of the Marbles um, uh, episode, uh, of course, Ilnam is kind of like having an episode where he's like remembering things and he can't talk to Gihun and, you know, all this stuff, right? And, and what he says, um, at least according to the right, subtitles, um, is this. 
I used to live in this house with my wife and son. I had a small pond in the front yard too. When I'd come home from work, my son would be having so much fun with his friends that he didn't even realize I'd come home. I would hide behind that telephone pole and take a peek at him playing. They were having so much fun. What does Ilnam want to do? He wants to play a game one last time, right? Before he dies, he wants to play a game. And who better to play it with than his own son, who is so enthralled in the game. He's having so much fun that he doesn't even realize his father is right there, hiding in plain sight. I cannot believe that they put that dialogue in and would not make Ilnam his father because it's describing the situation they're having right now because Gihun isn't listening to what he's saying because he's having so much fun, right? As in like he's trying not to die playing the game. He's so into playing the game that he doesn't actually, he doesn't actually stop to think maybe they both recognize this place for, for similar reasons, right? Because they're both from there, because they're related. Um, so I think, I think there's no, I, it would just be amazing to me if they put that dialogue in and didn't make him his father. It just seems like that dialogue is so perfectly suited to describe the situation that they're experiencing in that moment. Um, and, and of course, again, these writers don't waste any detail. So I just can't believe that I, I would be devastated if, if, if we find out that they're not related. I'm on the Darth Ilnam train. <laughs> You know, so we, we had been uh, chatting about this in, in, before. And so one of the things I was supposed to go back and check, because I think one of, one of the, you know, the pieces of evidence against it is if Ilnam had been player one in other Squid Games. I mean, obviously, again, you know, we, we know from the detect detective that he goes back. And these Squid Games have gone on for a long time. I thought I remembered that it starts with player two every time but I haven't gone back and checked. Is, do we know from the show whether this was the first time he enters as player one? Well, I think when they open the book and they open it to player two, it's the present game. Uh -huh. So I think that's just a comment on that he's entered this game. This is the only game he's ever entered. And you, and you realize that that's an aberration because when the, when the VPs come, uh, the VIPs, rather, when the VIPs come, they're like, where's the host? And they're like, oh, you know, unexpected, oh, whatever. Right. So, th so it's clearly not a normal thing that he's not there. Yeah, no, that's, that's, think. Really, no, that's really interesting. The lactose intolerant thing, I mean, I'm lactose intolerant. Like, I'm not related to Ilna. <laughs> I mean, you, but you're right. They, they okay. do put it right, they put it right next to each other um, in that scene. And, and uh, you know, like... Uh, you know, I watch Korean dramas. They're they're all usually related in some way. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? They're they like that trope. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was a thing. Um, Way to stereotype, Chris. Way to stereotype. <laughs> it's it, they they do like to connect characters with past. It's like as as fate and uh, um, so that is uh, you know, hearing you talk about it now, I'm I'm starting to starting to nod my head and think that there might be more to it I, i'm actually one of the people that wouldn't 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 be disappointed if there wasn't a sequel i just i liked where it was and i felt that the more it was getting explained i was like oh the less i'm starting to like it now <laughs> like i just kind of wish things would stay the way they are um i feel like there's too much pressure to do a second one i don't know 
Oh, yeah. I think that's really interesting hearing that theory. That's the first time I've heard it, Logan. So, yeah, I think there, that could be a possibility. Yeah, the lactose intolerance thing, I'm lactose intolerant, too. I also don't want to stereotype that a lot of Asians are lactose intolerant. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Clearly, clearly you and Chris point. are related then, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the third point that you brought up about the dialogue of him saying how he likes watching his son play games, I think that's actually pretty compelling, that, that bit of dialogue. So that is really interesting. I'm curious to see what will happen. Joe, I'm glad we got a space to espouse fan theories uh, on this podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm all about fan theories. You know, talking speaking about the ending of Squid Game, um, I just I had to I have to mention this because it's just too funny. LeBron James was quoted as saying that he loves Squid Game, but in classic form, like you know, the the stereotypical thing that any critic would say is, I don't like the ending though. <laughs> and somebody had brought that up to the the attention of um of of Hong Dong-hyuk, the director. And he was so savage in his response, which was, Have you seen Space Jam 2? <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's a fiery response so i heard him he was actually asked by ad after uh, a press you know briefing and as he's getting up he's he's like yeah i watched it i watched it and and he says he doesn't like the ending but if if you listen to the press briefing what he says is he should have gone to see his daughter that was that was what he didn't like about the ending and i, I think that's I think there's good reason not to like that. I mean, I think we should not like that. You know, we should we should dislike the fact that he turned around. But we I think we also kind of recognize the call to duty in some respects as well, that he feels like maybe there's this obligation that he has to take it down, even though he, he should be a good father to his daughter. Right. No, we were screaming at the television, like at the end. We were like, what are you doing? Like, don't, don't go and like trace that number and go back to the island. You, like, you just told your daughter that you loved her. You know, you were going to make some changes in your life, Kevin. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you all uh, for this fascinating and delightful conversation. Yeah, no, thanks. This is great. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Yeah, it was fun. 